Does the eagle soar high at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there, it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Let us worship the Lord our God. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep God's decrees, who seek God with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in God's ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your, your statutes. 
We praise and adore you, O God of grace, O Savior of our lives, O Spirit ever brooding over our chaos. Humble us, we pray, before your majesty in this hour, but also bow us down before your image, hiding in friend and foe alike, until we see the light of Christ shining through the cracks of every merely human being whom you have sent our way to save us from ourselves and for the sake of him who came to seek and save the lost. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the Lord's name. And because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives at all whatsoever. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you would be so kind as to sign the friendship pad, which you'll find located on the inside edge of your pew. If you will sign your name and send it down the pew and back again, that will give us the advantages of one another's names as we finish worship and move into fellowship. I'd also like to ask the last person to look at it to tear the sheet off and leave it on the top for the ushers. It makes their job a lot easier. Uh, we'd also be delighted if everyone would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a short ramp. And most importantly, what you will find there is the opportunity to gather together, as I said, in fellowship in our common life together. Our deacons have prepared some light refreshments so that we might nourish ourselves as we do exactly that. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin and a couple that are not in the announcements. The first is to call your attention to this insert. On one side, you will see an invitation to a fabulous concert next Sunday afternoon. If you've never heard Callie in her non-sacred role, there you are, uh, you should. Callie has done jazz concerts here at First Church. This is our first chance since the pandemic, I think, to hear you in your element here at First Church. And that takes place at 4 o'clock with uh, nibbles and drinks before and then the concert after that. Uh, you may Q scan the QR code for tickets, or I imagine you can probably reach out to Andrew and he'll take care of you. Uh, on the back of that, you'll see a Linton series upcoming on Frederick Buechner's book, Wishful Thinking. And then on the uh, back of your bulletin, you'll see an announcement for a new members class to be scheduled. And we say to be scheduled because we want to include as many people as possible in the scheduling of that. So whether you've worshipped with us a short time or a long time, if you feel God is pulling you here to First Church to be a member in a more formal sense, we would love to include you in the scheduling of that class so that the most people can participate in it. Uh, there are other opportunities that you'll see in there that I'll highlight in weeks to come, but that is the one that is before us presently. Also, not in your bulletin, but of equal importance, is that today marks the 90th birthday of the inimitable, extraordinary Dolores Brisbane. So happy birthday, Dolores. <laughs>
with all of these things noted, we now have a minute permission from Episcopal Community Services. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Kyle Evans, and I'm the new chaplain at Episcopal Community Services. I want to thank you for this opportunity to share a little bit about what Episcopal Community Services does. We have some long and wonderful history with First Presbyterian, and I look forward to continuing that partnership. For those who may not be aware, Episcopal Community Services is 152 years old, and it has a long history of addressing all of the challenges within the community uh, as they evolve with uh, community input. We have four core values, justice, dignity, community, and impact. And I want to spotlight three different initiatives uh, this morning. The first is the St. Barnabas Community Resource Center, which was formerly known as the St. Barnabas Mission, uh, formerly a, a women and children's center, and now it's a hub for all kinds of support programs to help bring people out of poverty. That includes rapid rehousing, free legal aid, uh, coaching and individual interviewing, both mental and physical health and the like. We also have a great way for people to volunteer their services through our mission meals and uh, market programs so that you can actually help to assemble some meals that are frozen and provided to people um, in the community. We have an out-of-school program that has six different locations, some at the elementary level, some at the intermediate. It's premier and well-respected by the school program uh, throughout the city of Philadelphia. And then we have an advocacy initiative um, that we've long been involved with, but it's been more formalized now in what we call Just Now. Just Now is an opportunity for all people to go to the Episcopal uh, Community Services website and register themselves. And then when we learn of legislation that may not be supportive to the marginalized, you're notified of that and you have a way to automatically send something to your local representatives. That has a, the advocacy initiative has three different uh, pri priorities, which are racial equity benefits, the benefits cliff, uh, and uh, a living wage. I just in closing want to touch on a quote from Martin Luther King, and that is that bending the arc toward justice is something that we can all have a hand in doing to make sure that that arc continues to go towards justice. So I hope that ECS and First Pres continue to do that work together. Thank you. Thank you so much. I might add as the chair of the uh, Gun Violence Prevention Task Force that all of the things that you are doing really do prevent gun violence and so are part of our work in that way too. Thank you. Well, our feeble frame, God knows, and has in Christ ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven us before we even ask. Nevertheless, we ask, confiding in God's grace. Together, let us pray. Holy God, you have invited us to write your laws on our hearts and to find our meaning in you. You give us the gift of community and call us to a way of life set aside for a holy purpose. Granted a framework of ethics that reflects what you value, we too often strive for lesser ends. We pat ourselves on the back 
for not committing certain offenses, but do not see that it is our inward hearts that concern you. Forgive us, we pray. Renew within us the commitment to be your people, to show your way, to live as vessels of your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For God knows how we were made. God remembers that we are dust. And in Jesus Christ, God forgives. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
The first lesson this morning is from the book of Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. With the help of God's spirit, listen for God's word in these words. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and, ad and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The second lesson from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the third chapter. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now, you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving according are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclination for when when one says i belong to paul and another i belong to apollos are you not merely human what then is apollos what is paul servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants, working together. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
The work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For it is the wisdom, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Thanks be to God. Our gospel lesson is from the gospel according to Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 21 through 37. We continue in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those as of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has anything against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come to offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven or on earth, for it is the throne of God, or earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. 
Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> On three separate occasions, the editor of the Christian Century asked the noted 20th century theologian Karl Barth to write an essay about the ways in which he had changed his mind over the preceding decade and to be autobiographical about it. Three times, Bart obliged, and the essays are collected into a small volume, How I Changed My Mind. It is important, sometimes, to change the way we think when we encounter new information, or when our old ways of thinking no longer serve the world we know, the, the ability to change one's mind, to grow and sharpen our understanding, no matter how sharp our understanding may have been before, is the heart of intelligence, to say nothing of compassion, and empathy. Such, I suspect, was the case for at least some of Jesus' congregation as he preached his Sermon on the Mount. For some, if not a great many, the experience of living in faith with the law had strayed sufficiently from being a means of grace a way of living fully and deeply faithful lives that correction was called for. Since Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, the first thing we need to understand is the law itself. When the Bible references the law, it doesn't mean what happens in courtrooms or judges' chambers or in the legislative bodies. It means a covenant. In the Bible, the law is God's covenant. It is God saying to the people, I will be your God, as God said at the giving of the Decalogue, and you will be my people, and this is how you will do it. This is how I want you to live. 
Because God's gift, the law, is God's gift so that God's people will know how to live well. How to live with integrity and kindness for one another. It is important for the church to clarify this over and over and over again as many times as it takes. Because when some folks hear the words, God's law, they expect that what happens next is somebody is about to get a smiting. However, understood rightly, the law is not that. It is a crutch to aid in the walking of a life of faith, not a club with which to beat unsuspecting passers-by. The church has to say that because there is a lot of unlearning that needs to happen sometimes. If that's the case, we're in good company. Because in the years between God gave the law and the Sermon on the Mount, there had been some drifting, perhaps, a bit of scope creep in the understanding of what the law did, what its meaning and purpose were. The circumstances and experiences of God's people had pushed and pulled them away from an understanding of faith, of living within the law that was life-giving and healing, and put at least a few of them in the position of wondering, is somebody about to get a smiting? Jesus' words immediately prior to our lesson this morning remind us that not one bit of the law falls away. As he said, he comes not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And I will grant you that there is nothing about this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that is an easy message to hear. His structure through this portion is to take a section of the law. That's what he does each time he says, you have heard it was said, and then he intensifies it. But I say to you, so that its message is crystal clear. And Christians in every age have struggled with what Jesus said. As I read back over some of the history of interpretation of this passage, I found so many variations on a theme that I began to wonder if scholars in every age have looked at this passage as if it were a mirror and seen their greatest fears and inadequacies reflected back to them. We could do the same. These words get at some of the very core things that affect us. Divorce for one. Lust for another. Honesty or lack thereof and its corrosive effects on community. It would be very easy to turn this portion of the Sermon of the Mount into a club with which to beat ourselves and passers-by. And that would be wrong. The law is a gift not a curse. When Jesus turns his attention to honing the law to a sharp edge, it is not to slash at us, but it is to pierce our hearts.
Each time Jesus intensifies the law, each time he adds, but I say to you, what he says points back to the heart of the law, not necessarily to the ritual practice so much, but to God's covenantal call to be God's people in the world, to the ethics of life. And at the heart of the law, at the heart of God's covenant, is love. Not a sloppy, sentimental kind of love, but rather a fierce love that will not settle for cheap grace. We may cheapen God's grace in many ways, but chief among those ways, I think, is approaching faith in such a way that it concerns itself only with what must I do in order that I might avoid suffering in the next life? How can I avoid being the subject of the cosmic smiting? Cheap grace is where we take a covenantal understanding of a relationship with the living God who calls us into communion with God and with one another, and we turn it into a set of rules that we must follow in order to inherit eternal life. Cheap grace is when we pat ourselves on the back for our good works, but leave our interior lives unexamined. Or worse, perhaps we do look inward, but then when we consider our own brokenness, we do so with a cavalier depravity that fails to recognize it as broken. Perhaps you will recall a phrase that explains cheap grace oft associated with Rasputin. It goes like this, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, it's a perfect arrangement. Rasputin's thesis on sin and grace has been modified and taken many forms through the years, but its approach to God's grace remains irreducibly cheap. When we run up against cheap grace, it is time to change our mind. German theologian Helmut Thielicke had this to say about this portion of scripture. We should really stop to think about what this must have meant to those who were listening to him. After all, they were within a tradition in which God was taken with an immense seriousness. Every step was related to God and taken, as it were, under the eyes of God. From this, there had developed a system of legal prescriptions that kept a person constantly on tinterhooks and never allowed him to be certain of whether he had really measured up to the will of God. All of us know pretty well what this amounted to among the Pharisees. But we need, nevertheless, to guard ourselves against ridiculing this earnestness and being too quick to dismiss it as morbid legalism. Perhaps it really was a rather morbid form of taking God seriously, just as today when we meet a hard, legalistic Christian, we sense a certain morbidity and the effect that it has on us is always somewhat chilling and repulsive. But is it any less morbid not to take God seriously at all? Any less pathological than calling upon God only at marriages, funerals, and a few times when we are in a tight spot. And even for then, for the most part, only as a matter of form. 
Felix was right. We should stop to think about what Jesus' words would have meant to those hearing them for the first time. And we should stop to think about what they mean to us. Jesus' words, as he intensifies the law, pierce our hearts and turn us to the heart of the law, which is to the heart of God. Jesus' words turn us toward love. But Jesus' words do not sharpen the law in order to pierce the heart that it may kill. His words pierce the heart in order that they may heal. Thus far, I have avoided the content intentionally of those phrases scholars sometimes call the antitheses. They are sometimes called this because of their structure. A thesis is proposed, you have heard it was said, and followed by a clause, but I say to you, which some consider to be the antithesis of the preceding phrase. Now, interestingly, in most cases, what Jesus said is not at all antithetical to the law as God gives it. In most cases, what he said builds upon, gives a higher standard, and as I have suggested, sharpens the law. But I have avoided these phrases, the content of them, because in some cases their meaning is deeply cultural, particularly in the case of Jesus' teachings on divorce and oaths. The culture of the first century understood both marriage and divorce as well as oath-taking in ways that are substantively different from our understanding. And not paying attention to the history and the context behind these would allow us to see this sermon as simply a newer, harder set of rules to follow in order to avoid cosmic smiting. And to see Jesus' sermon in that way would be utterly to miss the point. The point is not to adopt a way of life that is dictated by ever more rigorous rules in order to rest assured that when we die, we are looking down on the world and not up at it. The point is to realize a way of life that is shaped foundationally by love, a way of life wherein how we act toward others, how we relate to God, is a way that embraces humanity, the humanity for which God has created us. Anything else misses the point. We are to engage life as God's people. And we are to live as though we see others as God's people. And here in this moment, Jesus' sermon is a verbal version of his later cleansing of the temple. Grace takes us to the heart of the law because the heart of the law is the heart of God. Our lives sometimes push us and pull us toward grace. And sometimes what comes at us 
pushes us and pulls us away, our actions, our attitudes sometimes pull us and push us toward grace, and sometimes they push us away. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is always a call to grace and kindness. The good news is always, always a message of hope and mercy. If it is otherwise, it is not the gospel. Gospel means good news. And remember, it's not good news unless it is good news for everyone. My friend Siobhan Starling Lewis has this last week been representing the Presbyterian Church as our co-moderator at a conference on peacemaking in South Sudan. Along with the Pope, Christian leaders from around the world have used this particular peacemaking conference as an opportunity to push for an end to laws that criminalize LGBTQ plus relationships. Regardless of their individual church's teaching on human sexualities, these leaders met and preached that these laws should change. I wonder if perhaps any of their minds were changed. As I was reading and hearing about this gathering in Africa, my mind returned, grazed back over things I'd heard through the years, to a man named David Cato. David Cato was a human rights activist in Uganda. His photograph and name were released by a newspaper that suggested that he should be killed because of his sexual orientation. And within a short time, he was brutally murdered. The police investigated and released a report indicating that they believed it was nothing more than a routine home invasion. And I almost hesitate to share this as a sermon illustration because it is so very stark and harsh, but I want you to know what happened later. At his funeral, the pastor did what no pastor should ever do at a funeral. He preached a sermon in which he taught that God's punishment would rest on those whose lives deviated from what he believed were God's teachings about human sexuality. And the congregation, knowing that what they were hearing wasn't the gospel, shouted the preacher down. They kept shouting until he stood down and walked away. And then, and this is the part I couldn't wait to share with you, as the congregation of his friends carried his casket to the grave, an Anglican bishop stood up and preached the good news of God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's endless capacity for reconciliation and restoration. It has been so many years, I, I honestly cannot remember the content of the sermon. I just remember hearing 
You have heard it was said, but I say to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Together confess the church's faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Paul writes, you will be enriched in every way through your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Your tithes and offerings are invited.
gracious giver of all things, by the working of your Holy Spirit, multiply our charity by your love, lavished on the least and the lost, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. We come to you on this morning, gracious Savior of our lives, awash with praise and thanksgiving and astonishment that you have come to us, that you know us from the inside out, that you judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, that you see us naked and laid bare, and even so, that you look at us and love us. What language shall we borrow to thank you, dearest friend? As by your grace you have come so close to us that you see us just as we are. Help us more and more to see one another through the eyes of your love. To look upon every other we encounter as one for whom you have died. To live as one with those whom the world still judges as less and lacking. Because you have assumed all of our broken hearts as your own, teach us to assume in the imaginations of our hearts the life of the mother on welfare, the addict who cannot will himself clean, the lone young man alienated, the prodigal squandering her life, the illegal alien desperate for a new beginning, the trans teen contemplating suicide, the unemployed worker who has given up, the parent grown cranky with age, the incorrigible child who cannot sit still, the colleague who judges us, Lead us more and more to assume the life of those we have distanced by our judgment. For we, no less than they, live in need of your mercy, your grace, your redeeming love. We pray in particular for the survivors in Turkey and Syria, whose losses are literally unbearable, and yet whose cries to heaven and highest heaven are held in your broken heart. We ask that they may grieve not as them who have no hope. We beseech you at the very least to press our pocketbooks into service. We ask your mercy to be upon those whose fear of the other turns them toward hate and ask your hand to stay the hand of any in this city, in this nation, that would presume to choose death for those created by you to choose life. We ask your tender mercies to be with each one who is broken in body or spirit, whose infirmities and weaknesses are about to get the better of them. Help us to help them trust that you have taken their infirmities and weaknesses into your life so that they might not bear them alone and give them eyes to see the horizon of your promised future. Finally, we beseech you for this congregation, 
that more and more we may take our place with Jesus in the places where people really live and really die. That we may see day by day those made invisible by an economy ordered to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. That in his name we may bless and so assume the life of the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated as our very own that we may see and follow every manifestation of your light in our ordinary lives, lest the darkness overtake us. Hear, O Lord, our prayers. Raise us up as with wings like eagles, and hear us now as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
who contemplate God's law is to come face to face with the heart of God. And God is love, which is why Christian faith can never be simply a collection of things we do and pat ourselves on the back for doing well, or perhaps excoriate ourselves for doing poorly. Christian faith must always be a way of being, our way of being in the world, because that is what Christ calls us to do. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and to those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.